Something keeps setting off my neighbor's motion sensor light at 3 a.m. Written by Ritzler If you live in a suburb, you've surely had some neighbors who have been a colossal pain in your butt. For the most part, I've been lucky. I'm friends with Tom and Kathy a house away from us, and at the least, I'm on neutral ground with everyone else. Well, everyone but Mr. Finster. Mr. Finster was in his 60s and was the type of person that if you said hello to him while he was outside, he would just give you a look and continue whatever he was doing. No nod or even a smile. He had lived in the development longer than we had. I never saw Mrs. Finster, so I assumed that he had just never married. He also didn't seem to work as I really caught him coming or going during my own work commute. My wife and I assumed that he was retired, and sometimes when we were bored, we wondered what sort of things he did for work. Since we knew very little about Mr. Finster, we naturally went the route of, he's probably a serial killer. Whatever he got up to in that house of his, we gathered that he didn't have much of a social life. His house was usually dark by 9pm, and we rarely ever saw him leave in the evening. He had a car, sure, but it seemed to only get used during the early afternoons probably when he went to the grocery store or did other errands around town. What little routine he did have didn't get him out of the house much. While things at night were always quiet with Mr. Finster, he did have a motion-sensing security light on his back patio that would sometimes wake me up in the middle of the night when a deer or some other kind of animal tripped the sensor. There is a chain-link fence dividing the shared border of our houses, but otherwise, Mr. Finster's yard opened up to the woods. I understood why he had it. When you're older and alone, it's nice to know that if something is approaching through your yard, you'll get a warning and a nice, bright burst of light. It was extra peace of mind. Usually the light flashing on and off wasn't too big of an annoyance, but lately it had been driving me bonkers as it seemed to be going off around every night at 3am, and it seemed to stay on for a good while too. I know I wasn't the only one being bothered by the light either. My two kiddos, Lucy and Jacob, mentioned it the next morning. Both of our bedrooms were on the same wall adjacent to Mr. Finster's house, so our bedroom windows looked directly into his yard from upstairs. My wife slept on the other side of the bed, so when the light went off, she wasn't as bothered by it as I was. His freaking light was on for like half an hour last night. Jacob said irately as he stabbed at a bowl of cereal. Hey, language. I said as my wife and I try not to laugh. Jacob was in the fourth grade, while Lucy was in the third. We tried to discourage them from using curse words. Even if hearing a young child swearing is one of the world's greatest treasures. 
Well, provided you're not playing opposite them in an online video game. I mean, there's no way there are that many animals running through his yard. Jacob continued. Well, maybe he got a dog, said my wife. He does live alone. Maybe he's been getting lonely. I've never seen him out walking a dog or anything. Never heard any barking. I said. I noticed Lucy was quietly pulling apart a piece of toast, eating tiny bites. She had dark circles under her eyes and looked tired. Did the light also keep you up last night, Lucy? She nodded and said, I thought I saw something, but I was probably imagining it. I, I didn't. I didn't get a good look or anything. Well, what'd you see? I said, sipping at my coffee. I thought I saw Mr. Finster standing outside, staring at me. I put my cup of coffee down on the table, sufficiently creeped out. For some reason, anything that's just a little creepy sounds much creepier coming from a child. Did you happen to take a look, Jacob? I asked. Jacob shook his head, but I knew his bed was closer to the door than to the windows. And Lucy was closer to the window because she was afraid of the dark and liked to let the moonlight in. Well, if Mr. Finster happened to be outside, I'm sure he wasn't actually looking at you, Lucy. I said, trying to reassure her. She nodded, but I could see there was still a mixture of fear and doubt on her pale face. Let's get you ready for school, my wife said sliding next to her and helping get her things together. I finished my coffee and headed into work. When I pulled out of the drive, I hovered in the street for a bit and watched Mr. Finster's house. I don't know what I expected to see, but the house was quiet. That night, the light flashed on again at 3 a.m., I rolled over in bed, cursing. I was a light sleeper, but Mr. Finster's porch light hadn't usually been that much of an issue before. There were plenty of nights where it didn't go off at all, but it seemed like this week he had a new routine. That her and animal kept dancing around his porch. I checked to see if my wife might have been awake. And in the minutes that followed, the light kicked off. I closed my eyes and tried to go back to sleep. And then the light came on again. Jesus Christ, Finster. What the heck are you doing out there? I whispered. I slid out of bed this time and looked out the window through blurry eyes. I grabbed my glasses off the nightstand and I had to stop myself from yelling as the world came into focus. Mr. Finster was standing there in the yard, but he wasn't moving. His long shadow crept across the lawn as his back was to the light. Because he was standing with his back to the only source of direct light, I couldn't make out his face or what he was wearing. The outline of his hair looked about as I remembered, but it was dark out. 
I wasn't 100% sure that it was him. But there wasn't much of a reason for someone else to be standing out there in his yard at 3am. I leaned down in the corner of the window frame, thinking that he might be able to see me if I kept standing there. I kept watching, waiting for him to move or do something, but he didn't. He just remained completely still. Crap, was the guy even breathing? I was so concentrated on watching from the corner of the window that I hadn't heard the soft steps on the carpet behind me. Daddy, whispered Lucy. I jumped and almost bashed my head on the windowsill. Jesus, Lucy, I said. You see him too, don't you, Dad? She asked, clutching her stuffed Peter Rabbit under her arm. Yeah, honey, I see him. I had my back to the window and noticed that the room had grown dark again. I realized then that it wouldn't be that weird if he was just smoking outside. The thought suddenly comforted me. Duh, you idiot. He probably picked up smoking and is just going outside for a smoke. But I hadn't seen anything glowing in his hands, like a cigarette. And I could have sworn when I was watching him that he hadn't moved in several minutes. He just remained completely still. I kept pushing the thoughts out of my head as I walked with Lucy back to her bedroom. However, when I rounded the corner in the hallway, I could see by the crack in the door of the room that the light had come on again. I'm going to look, but you're not going to look, okay? I told Lucy. She squeezed my hand and I squeezed it back. Just wait right here. I pushed their bedroom door open all the way, trying not to wake up Jacob, only to find that Jacob was sitting up in his bed with these sheets bunched up under his chin. Dad? He whispered. The lights keep flickering on and off. The light illuminating the window stopped, turning the room dark again. I stood there in the darkness, listening to the crickets chirp outside and then I advanced towards the window. I could hear my own heartbeat hammering in my chest as I drew closer to the window. It was so silly to suddenly be afraid of your geriatric neighbor being a little weirdo in his yard during the middle of the night. Besides being cold and aloof, it's not like Mr. Finster had a track record of causing problems. I got to the window and scanned the outside. With just the moonlight, I couldn't tell if he was there anymore, but it seemed like he had gone back into the house. I waited for several seconds. Some owls were hooting outside, and I glanced up to look at the stars. Flash. I stifled a yell. He was standing right up against the fence to his yard. And now I knew for sure that he wasn't just looking, but looking up at the window, right at me. I backed away from the window. What do you see, Dad? What do you see? Whispered Jacob. 
It was then that I realized Mr. Finster hadn't actually been standing completely still. He had been advancing closer to the house each time the light went off. There must have been an activation threshold for the light, where it wouldn't flash until motion had been detected for at least a few seconds. Another thought chilled me to the bone. What if all this time, he only stopped moving because we saw him? I didn't try to reason why this would be possible. That between me and Lucy, he could tell when one of us was tracking him. Red light and green light. Alright Jacob, we're going to go down the hall back to mom and dad's room, okay? He slid out of bed and grabbed my hand. I went into the hall and Lucy, who had been peering through the doorway, grabbed my other hand. I stole a glance at the window again and saw that the chain-link fence separating our yard from Mr. Finster's was shaking slightly, with Mr. Finster nowhere to be found. Crap. As we were about halfway to my bedroom, a loud pounding hammered at the front door. The kids screamed. My wife woke up from the commotion, confused, and finally caught up with the rest of us who were scared out of our minds. Stay here with your mom, I said. I went downstairs and grabbed a baseball bat from the closet. Again, Mr. Finster pounded on the door. I got to the door and raising the bat, yelled, I don't know what your problem is, Finster, but you better go back to your house before I call the police. Do you understand me? I waited. He didn't knock again. We made a fort of sorts in our bedroom to try to get the kids to sleep while I stayed up all night long, keeping an eye on Mr. Finster's yard. I cradled the bat between my fingers, fighting off the urge to sleep. I told my wife that first thing in the morning, I would call Tom and Kathy to ask if they had noticed Mr. Finster doing any weird stuff to them, and then I would file the police report. Maybe in his older age, he had finally just really lost it. I didn't see him in his yard again that night, and thankfully, the light didn't go off anymore. I snapped awake from my vigil as birds chirped outside, and the early bleed of sunrise crept into view. I waited until 9am and then phoned Tom. I knew they were on vacation and might have been asleep, but I needed to talk to somebody about this. Thankfully, Tom answered by the third ring. Hey Tom, sorry to be bothering you during your vacation, but have you guys been having any problems with Mr. Finster? The guy is scaring the bejesus out of my kid. He was just staring through our windows last night, and then he started pounding on the front door and... Doug, hang on. I could tell that he had just woken up but I kept talking over him. I'm about to call the cops, man. I really am. Doug, you didn't hear, he said. And then he said something that changed everything about that night. 
Mr. Finster died a week ago. The Reason That I Stopped Going Camping Written by Johnny Blanco, 69 Whenever work colleagues or friends of mine bring up these specifics of camping, I tell them that I've never been. Of course, I'm urged to join them on their exploits, however. I find an excuse not to go. They implore me saying that I will have a great time in the wilderness and it's a great way to unplug and reconnect with nature. The whole conversation comes to a head when I say that I really don't want to go camping because there is nothing that the wilderness holds for me. That, of course, is a lie. When I was growing up, it was in the small county called Boswell, which was in Pennsylvania. This was back in the day when you knew your neighbors, hung out with kids in the block, and had a sense of adventure. I grew up in the Cub Scouts and later on transferred to the Boy Scouts, and one of the requirements was to go camping overnight in the woods. Right outside of our town was Orenda Park, which was a nice small park that us Boy Scouts would use periodically. We would go on hikes to get us acclimated to the real thing, which was not far from our small town. Laurel is a state park that stretches out for miles in every direction, and if you've never been, it is a sight to behold. Whether it is during the springtime, where life is coming into bloom, or the explosion of color that heralds every fall season and never fails to disappoint. We spent countless hours deep within that park first as scouts and then later on as teenagers. There were four of us and one of us came up with the Fantastic Four from the comics as we mimicked our favorite superheroes. Johnny was the human torch as he was always a hothead ready to get into a fight for the dumbest reasons. Brian was Mr. Fantastic as he was the brains of the outfit, and always came up with good ideas, mostly to get us into trouble. Danny was the thing, as he was our rock, always someone that we could count on through thick and thin. And that left me as Sue Storm, and we had something in common, as we were both invisible. I can remember the first time we met each other, and that was in Cub Scouts. We clicked immediately, as we all loved the same things like comic books and cartoons. And when we found out that we all lived relatively close to one another, we would spend every weekend together. We would ride our bikes around the neighborhood, go to the general store to see what comics came in, and just get into all sorts of adventures. We continued into the scouts, all the way up into boy scouts, and we all four made it that far. I can remember our first time going camping, and it was an amazing experience done right on the edge of summer. It was something out of the movies as we sat around a campfire, roasting marshmallows and telling scary stories to entertain one another. We all decided to quit Boy Scouts before starting our first year at North Star High School. The reasoning behind this was Brian thought if we weren't a part of the Scouts, we wouldn't get picked on as much by the upperclassmen. That was a good idea in theory, however. In practice, it only worked for a week or two at best. After that, it was as if someone declared open season on all of us and went after us like hunters after deer. We tried to stand together, however, but they would just gang up on us and beat us collectively into the ground. 
One day during lunch, Johnny heard an offhand comment from one of these seniors and he just snapped. He grabbed his metal tray, flinging off his half-eaten lunch, hitting him hard in the stomach. As the senior doubled over in pain, he took the tray and hit him square in the face. The resounding clang echoed through the cafeteria as the senior fell flat on his back. Granted, Johnny got a week of suspension, but it was worth it. The seniors now knew that we were off limits and they made sure the rest of their class got the memo. The rumors about Johnny spread far and wide, and a lot of the kids decided it was better not to mess with him. Oh, and the senior that he hit. He had to go to the hospital because he broke his nose in three places with that tray. So, that first year of high school we instituted a tradition to let off some steam. We would go camping during the first three-day weekend of the school year. This was usually around Labor Day weekend as the heat from summer was starting to dissipate into the cool fall season. Sometimes we would make reservations for some sites in the campgrounds, and other times we just found a secluded spot way out from any trail. Those times were some of my fondest childhood memories, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. We kept up the tradition until our last year as seniors at North Star, and our first outing was bittersweet. Have you ever been on vacation and you still have a few days to enjoy it? However, you're already thinking about going back to work. Well, it was like that. We all sat around the campfire, and granted this was the beginning of the school year, we all thought about not seeing each other as much anymore. Brian had gotten into MIT, as he wanted to pursue a degree in engineering. Johnny wanted to go into the Marines, and a recruiter got his hooks into him, as he was going to basic after graduation. Danny was going to help out in the family business, and as for me, I had no idea what I was going to do. My parents wanted me to go to college, however, to study what? We all sat around the campfire roasting marshmallows as we talked about the usual BS that we had always talked about. Comic books and cartoons were replaced by cars, girls, and video games. During a lull in the conversation, I could feel all eyes around me as I tended my charred marshmallow. Hey, are you alright? Danny inquired. Yeah, what's up with you? Johnny asked. I shrugged my shoulders as I remarked that I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life right now. So? Technically, you're still a kid. Brian quipped. I nodded but then explained how everyone else had a plan but I didn't. I kind of felt lost and also felt like I wasn't going to do anything with my life. For now... Brian assured me. You should just relax and not think about things like this. You're a smart kid, and believe me when I tell you this, you'll figure it out. I nodded and smiled, feeling a weight being lifted off my shoulders as we spent the remainder of the evening talking and drinking. We decided to call it shortly after midnight, as we had exhausted our supply of marshmallows and conversation. I'm glad we still kept our own tents from scouts as this meant not having to share one. When sleep came, it came in fits and starts as I had a bunch of nightmares, most of which I can't recall. One of them I still remember to this day, 
as it was my three friends yelling at me over something. How they said that they couldn't be friends with me anymore over what I did and how I could do something like that. When I tried to get an answer of what I did, it was only met with more screaming which rose to a crescendo. I woke up a few seconds later as I panted and wanted to go back to sleep but the urgency to answer nature's call was greater. Unzipping my tent, I headed out into the cool night to relieve myself on a nearby tree. The moon was bright and full in the sky, almost acting like a second sun casting everything in a pale white light. As I headed back to my tent, I stopped for a moment to look at our campsite and froze. Mine was the only tent in the clearing. There wasn't another tent here as there should have been three other tents in the clearing with mine. I had seen my friends set them up early in the day. I'm sure of it as I remember Johnny struggling with his. He had thrown some of his stakes clear across the campsite as we all had a laugh at his outburst. Hello? I said aloud but only the noises of the forest greeted my reply. Hello? I screamed louder as I wondered what had happened. Why had my friends abandoned me? Where had they gone in the night? Was this some sort of elaborate prank? I was waiting for Brian and the rest of them to come out of the bushes and start laughing at me. But that moment never came, as I screamed out one more time. Hello! My voice strained as a mixture of fear and panic rose in my throat, as I had no idea what to do next. I slumped to the ground in defeat as I had never felt so alone as I did in that moment. It was as if there was no one left as something unseen had snatched my friends and their tents from the clearing. That didn't make any sense as I would have heard their screams and pleas for help. Letting out a deep cry of anguish, I let the entire forest know the depths of my pain. I never expected the forest to answer me. In the distance, my ears barely picked up a sound that, at first, I couldn't identify. It could have been anything from a deer call to the sound of a passing airplane. I didn't have to wait long to hear that sound again, and when I reached my ears, a shiver went down my spine. It was the bark of a large dog. Now, I couldn't have pets when I was a kid, as my sister was deathly allergic to all kinds of pet dander and most of the neighbors kept their pets either indoors or in their fenced backyards. All except for one, and he was a bitter old man that lived two blocks over from my house. Our neighbors used to complain about his dog, as this white mongrel used to prowl the neighborhood terrorizing anybody that crossed its path. This dog would growl and snap its jaws at anyone that got too close. Animal control had been called more than once on the dog, however, it seemed to either elude their grasp or somehow miraculously appear inside at the owner's house. The barks and growls echoed off the trees that surrounded the clearing, making it impossible to find out where this was coming from. I looked around wildly as I knew by the sound of this ravening beast that I was going to be attacked. Turning around, I managed to see a four-footed silhouette in the distance. Mustering up all of my strength... I took off in the other direction, at top speed, dodging trees as I went. 
I only covered about 200 feet when I saw this dog in the distance, much closer now. How could this be? I thought as I knew I had run in the opposite direction, as I saw just standing there. I had no time to think about this as my body ran off in another direction, dodging trees and getting cut by some of the lower hanging branches. This time, I had only made it about 100 feet or so, and I could see it in front of me much closer this time. I could see that it was a German Shepherd as it snarled at me, white teeth glistening in the moonlight. Ignoring all sense of logic, I took off in the other direction, dodging trees as I full-on sprinted to get away from this beast. I was only running for half a minute when I saw the shadowy outline that was much closer, as the moon illuminated this thing in front of me. I froze. My mind tried and failed to comprehend the creature that I saw in front of me. In the shadows, I thought it was a typical German Shepherd. However, up close this abomination was anything but a normal dog. Half of its face was worn down to the bone, as I could see an empty eye socket along with an exposed jaw full of sharp teeth. Its pelt was a mismatch of exposed bone, tendon, and even fur matted with mud, dirt, and of course blood. All four paws of the creature seemed to be intact, as it moved with the grace of an apex predator. It growled low in its throat at me as it barked once, loudly as if it was a challenge as if to say, Why are you here on my land? Every bit of me screamed that I should run, but I knew that with the creature standing so close, I would not stand a chance. My muscles locked up as I just stood there listening to a growl coming from this thing that seemed to shake the very ground. Before I could react, I felt myself being knocked backwards as it was on top of me in the blink of an eye. My breath caught on my chest as I was winded as I looked up and saw this creature's decayed face close to mine. The scent of rotten decay came off this abomination in waves of revulsion that was enough to make me gag. Turning my head sideways to offer some protection, I managed to croak out the only two words that came to mind. Uh, nice doggy. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind as I braced for the inevitable. However, as I finally mustered up the courage to look up, I saw this dog sitting on my chest. It looked at me with its head cocked to one side, as if to acknowledge what I had just said. I didn't even blink this time, as the dog was off my chest and sitting a few feet away from me. Slowly, I sat up at it as it just sat there looking at me with the same expectant look. Rising to my feet shakily, I never broke eye contact with the creature. As I stood up, it didn't move. Looking around me, I could see that there was a few branches that had been knocked loose from the nearby trees. Part of me did not want to move, however, but the dog sensed I was nervous and started to pant. That gave me the courage to bend down and pick up a good-sized stick as I held it out defensively in front of me. Here, boy. You want this? It let out a low wolf as it sprawled into a typical let's-play stance, waiting for me to throw the stick. I reared back as I flung the stick as hard as I could, as it sailed through the air as the dog turned around and started chasing it. This thing took three or four steps and then blinked out of sight only to reappear a few seconds later in front of me, 
with the stick in its muzzle. I was completely dumbfounded as the dog dropped it at my feet with a grin that seemed to say, Did I do good? This went on for like an hour or so as we played fetch, tug of war with branches and he chased me and I him. I always wondered what it would be like to own a dog, and now I knew as I was no longer afraid of this beast. As the first rays of sun started to filter through the forest canopy, the dog stopped in the middle of the clearing. Ears perked up as if hearing a call from far off as its tail started to wag. It took a step forward and then looked back at me and barked once as if to say thanks. The dog sprinted forward and this time was running instead of blinking out of existence. As it hit the sunlight, it started to change back into a normal dog. The fur coat looked brushed and immaculate as all traces of decay and rot were wiped clean. I then looked to see where it was running to and there was a small shadowy shape that was waving at the dog. As I saw the dog meet the small shape, they both walked off, fading into the morning light. I wiped my eyes and tried to get my bearings as I headed due west. I knew that I would either hit the parking lot or a main road, where I could flag someone down and get some help. Not even ten minutes later, I hear my friends calling my name as I rushed out of the woods into the parking lot. They all looked at me dumbfounded and then started questioning me all at once. Where the heck did you go? Johnny roared. We were going to get the cops. Or at least the ranger, Brian interjected. What the heck has gotten into you, man? Danny came up to me and asked if I was okay, as I shook my head and looked as if I was going to cry. Why, why did you guys leave me? Was the only thing that I could say. They looked at each other, perplexed. Dude, we didn't go anywhere. We woke up this morning and found your tent empty. We figured that you had gone to take a whiz and got lost coming back. Johnny smirked as he tossed a bag into the back of the car. Yeah, I even packed your stupid tent and sleeping bag. This made no sense as I knew I had woken up in a deserted clearing. However, if I'd told them what had happened, they wouldn't believe me. Or worse, they would probably have me committed. So, I made up a story saying that I must have walked in my sleep and woke up in an unfamiliar clearing. I never went camping again. We only had the opportunity to go twice more during the school year, however, but it seemed that fate would intervene. The first time, we couldn't go as Brian had gotten sick, and our last outing was cancelled because Johnny was grounded. The rest of the year passed in a blur as we studied her finals and then prepared to go our separate ways. I had taken my parents' advice and enrolled in a nearby college, and there I found my new passion. I decided to pursue a bachelor's degree in business administration and graduated at the top of my class. Upon graduating, I had found a job within a successful computer company and had found my niche in life. I worked hard and was rewarded for it. And in less than five years, I had relocated to Pittsburgh to run offices there. I had taken all the money that I had saved and bought myself a nice condo in a high-rise that was right on the river. I had even found a local shelter and adopted a young German Shepherd that I affectionately called Duke. But that's not what haunts my dreams at night. Every so often, I find myself back in that clearing in my dreams. 
and I find something else that the forest has claimed and twisted into a hideous creature. It could be a deer or a bear or something else, and I can almost hear the forest trying to call me back to it. Sometimes, when I wake up at night, I stare across the banks of the Allegheny River into the wooded hills that lie beyond and wonder if one day I'll wake up in the middle of that forest. And I also wonder if I will ever make it out. I think I saw Wendigo through my train window. Written by CJ Phillips 612 It is as the title states. I am fairly certain that I saw a Wendigo out the window of the train. If that were the only event that happened, that I wouldn't have any reason to tell my story. In order to get into what happened, let me start off at the beginning of the day. It was a normal Saturday as far as I was concerned. I stayed up until about 3am playing the newest online mobile game with my brothers. Yeah, I know. It is considered a sin to cheat by using my brother's screens to determine who the imposter is, but I'm not getting into that debate right now. I woke up not too long after 9am, played on my phone a while and then hopped out of bed, threw on the same clothes I had on the day before, and headed downstairs to the kitchen. I threw together my favorite breakfast food while my brothers both groggily dragged their feet to meet me. My twin brother, Gabe, decided to shower to wake himself up, while my younger brother, Zach, decided to partake in the feast of homemade waffles with peanut butter and chocolate milk. By the time Gabe was dressed and sitting at the kitchen table, Zach and I had already finished putting the dishes into our dishwasher and cleaned off the table. I had packed in advance and my train wasn't for a few more hours. So my brothers and I had pulled our phones out and began terrorizing the servers of Among Us for a little while. After we grew tired from the online insults and cyberbullying that we received for cheating, we played some Mortal Kombat on our PS4. It was a very relaxing morning, all things considered. As I prepared to collect my luggage and leave for the train station, I reiterated the food plans to my siblings. The roast is in the slow cooker. All you have to do is clean up. It is going to be finished at 6 today, and if you aren't sure if it's done, then just shoot me a picture. I continued speaking over Gabe's attempts of assuring me that they would be fine without me. Remember, tomorrow was oven-baked chicken fingers and fries. After school Monday is burgers, and you can order anything you want for Tuesday, and make sure that you tip. I rushed my sentence as Gabe held the front door of our tiny rented house open for me. Chrissy, we'll be fine, okay? Chill out, okay? Gabe chuckled to himself. You're right, you'll be fine. Do your homework, I love you guys, see you Wednesday. I called to them as I headed down the paved driveway and towards the bus stop down the road. Hasta la vista, baby! As Zach yelled my favorite movie reference of all time at me. I couldn't help but smile. They'll be fine. I raised them well, I thought to myself. I looked at them waving in the open front door and gave them a very flat and stern expression. I'll be back. I deepened my voice as best as possible, 
before smiling and heading back towards the bus stop. My parents were extremely busy people all their lives. Gabe was born with a learning disability and required more attention from my parents than I needed. I had to grow up and mature faster to be able to take care of Gabe. As our mother was a full-time principal in our local school and a part-time student tutor, while my father worked as a warehouse manager full-time and was often working the midnight shifts. He worked those shifts due to the employees' reputations to be unproductive. He always said that he needed to straighten them out. My father would sleep all day and my mother would work all day. I would always prepare Gabe's lunches and walk him to school, walk him home and make him dinner. I helped him with his homework. I read him bedtime stories. I tucked him into bed. I was always there for him. Zach was born a week before my ninth birthday with Gabe. By now Gabe had quickly matured, surprising everyone. He was potentially even smarter and more socially acceptable than I was, though he didn't have the same parenting skills that I had developed, and therefore wasn't entirely confident in even turning on an oven or setting a microwave timer. Anyways, by the time Zach came around, I was well aware that I would have to raise him too. I so desperately wanted my mom and dad to be real parents for little Zach, to be there for him and be what Gabe and I never had. But I knew deep down inside that that would not happen. By the time that Gabe and I were 18 and Zach had just turned 9, the three of us moved out and into our own apartment. I wasn't even sure that our parents would notice Zach's absence to be honest. They had no issues with us all moving in together. They said to me themselves that they knew Zach was better off with us than them. They said that he was never supposed to be, which entirely angered me. Because of this, Gabe and I started to call Zach our miracle brother. Despite our age gap, the three of us were extremely close with one another. It was us three against the world. Nobody would change that. And then about a year ago, I fell in love with my old high school crush. His name is Brian. We were always close friends since grade 9, but as high school came to a close and we had parted ways for university, we confessed our love. It was a very corny, movie moment to me. Even through long distance, we made our relationship work. Gabe and Zach were obviously jealous that Brian was taking all of my attention. They were afraid that Brian was going to take me away from them. But all that aside, they liked my boyfriend. They were all friendly and had good laughs together. They were happy for us. So, here I am, at the train station, awaiting my train to my boyfriend on our first year anniversary. I anxiously awaited the train, wondering with me when I got back. Maybe they were mad already, or maybe they aren't upset at all. I talked myself into thinking that I was doing the right thing. Even though my stomach was turning violently, I was feeling very nauseous. I had nothing to do with anything that I ate. I just had a horrible feeling. Something inside me was telling me that something bad was going to happen. I didn't listen to it at the time. I thought it was all just the nerves of traveling. I was just too excited to see Brian. The train ride was quite long. It went from my small little town in southern Ontario to the northern and frigid climate that is stereotypically portrayed as all of Canada. 
Overall, the trip to Brian's apartments was close to 12 hours. However, that includes the train ride along with the bus and the drive that Brian has to take from his apartment to where I arrive in the train and back to his apartment. I had boarded the train and been seated when one of the train staff members asked to scan my ticket. I quickly apologized for not being prepared and dug through my luggage to find my ticket. After ensuring that I was settled and asking if I wanted any food or drink for the ride, the staff member had moved along down the aisle. I looked around the car, noticing only three other passengers, before pulling out my laptop from my bag and popping my headphones in my ears. I sent a text to my parents informing them of my absence from my hometown for the next few days and I threw on some YouTube. Gaming channels were always a favorite, but recently, Gabe had gotten me hooked onto a game theory channel. I could sit there for hours watching the different conspiracy theories about video game lore, and for the first half of my trap, that's exactly what I did. The early winter sunset filled the skies with orange and pink highlights as I decided to put my laptop away and watch the window with my music playlist on. I had always enjoyed listening to music on long trips, especially across the country. I tried to imagine cheesy movie scenes taking place in the open fields, with slow songs playing and faceless couples slow dancing. Within about an hour after I had first peered out of my window, the snow had begun. At first, it was a light flurry, hardly visible as the train sped along the tracks. Eventually, it was a blizzarding. Simply looking outside gave me chills as I never enjoyed being in the snow. Snow is pretty, but from afar, I would always say. I shivered underneath my thick leather jacket as the train came to a slow stop in a remote northern town. This was not my stop as the train station itself was visibly the largest building in the entire town. Anyone could stand on one end of the town and see the other side down the road, even in the blizzard-like conditions that were present. As the train waited, I kept my eyes focused outside my window. No passengers had left the car, and no additional passengers had boarded. I found this to be very strange, as the train needed to always stay on schedule. Little time was available for simply stopping. There must have been something wrong with one of the employees, or the conductor, or possibly even the train itself. Attention passengers, we apologize for the delay. We will continue our trip in five minutes. Once again, we apologize for the delay. We thank you for choosing to ride with us and enjoy your evening. The overhead speakers broke through my thoughts and pulled me back into reality. I simply looked around the car for a moment and then texted Brian to let him know of the five minute delay. When I looked back outside my window again, was when I saw it. The tall figure was hunched over and with its back towards me. I could see the back of its white skull and its antlers broken and distorted. It was extremely frail, its limbs impossibly long and spindly. The creature was in a tree line across the town. Hardly any specific details were noticeable through the extreme snow. However, I recognized right away the creature. Doubt had settled in almost as fast as the creature seemed to appear. Has it always been there? Was my mind playing tricks on me? 
It became more and more obvious the longer that I gawked at it. How had I not noticed it until now? What the heck? I whispered under my breath. At the moment, I was so quiet that I wasn't even sure I had said it out loud. Just as soon as I had questioned, the creature whirled its head at a near 180 degree angle to face me. The black pits for eyes stared deep into my soul. This creature had heard me, and now this creature had seen me. I was sure of it. Its mouth unhinged and an animal's corpse fell out, blood spilling everywhere. Whatever this creature had been consuming was too mangled to determine what it really was. The train jolted to life and crawled across the tracks, gradually gaining speed. I was startled from the sudden movement and jumped nearly out of my seat. The creature only stared as I sped off. I scrambled to get my laptop out of my bag and reconnect it to the train's Wi-Fi. I spent the last two and a half hours of my trip researching the creature. This is where I learned of its name. Wendigo. This creature had been a part of native folklore for many generations. I nearly couldn't hold my dinner in when I read about these stories of cannibals becoming wendigos hundreds of years ago. After reading about other people's close encounters online, I was more and more convinced that what I saw was real. I was ready to move on and forget about my encounter with the wendigo by the time that I stepped off the train. I practically fell into Brian's arms and broke down. A mixture of fear and emotions of sadness and loneliness overtaking me all at once. I was grateful to be there with him, in his arms when I needed him most. I told him about my encounter with the cryptid on the drive back to his apartment. I believe that you definitely saw something, he began, his doubt unintentionally present in his voice. I just don't believe that a creature like that exists at all. Like, how come the only solid proof of its existence are tall tales and folklore? I don't know, Brian. I quietly looked to my feet. He reached one of his hands off the wheel and held mine firmly and reassuringly. I just, I don't know what it is, I guess. It feels real to me. Well, that's good enough for me, he said calmly. That's enough a reason for me to keep you safe. His classic, cute grin formed on his face, revealing only a few of his nearly perfect white teeth. Oh, you need a reason to keep me safe, I jokingly said, as if he had said something offensive. Well, no, I, uh, he stumbled over his words. Uh-huh, I made it comically clear that I was not believing him. Brian had managed to make me forget all about my terrible experience hours ago. We were laughing and joking around as he pulled into his parking space and his apartment complex. The building itself hadn't been very tall, only about 10 stories. The building itself was nearly completely surrounded by dark Canadian woods. His town wasn't very large, only about 8,000 residents. Beautiful, lush, evergreen forests surrounded the little city, with nearly every house having its own tree in the front lawn. Sparkling white snowflakes gently fell around me as I stepped out of Brian's car. The parking lot was lightly covered in snow before I managed to make it to the entrance of the building. Brian, like the gentleman he is, 
carried my luggage from the car and to the apartment. He was talking about one of the regular customers at his fast food part-time job when I cut him off. Listen, I said in a hushed whisper. The hairs on my arms stood on end. Goosebumps formed all over my body. Someone was watching us. I could feel it. I scanned the tree line, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. I don't hear anything, Chris. Exactly. It's so quiet. There weren't any noises around, not a single sound, only the eerie dead silence. Is it always this quiet? In the middle of the night, yeah, it is. Brian wasn't making me feel any better. What's wrong, Chrissy? You still spooked. Let's just go inside. I don't like it out here. I clung onto his arm and rushed towards the front doors. Once inside and in the elevator, I told him what I read online. I explained that the absence of any natural noises or wild animals typically means that there is a predator around. With his apartment complex close to some dark woods, I wasn't very calm. I also told him how I felt that we were being watched from something in the woods. Babe, your nerves are probably just shot. He held me close to him, trying to calm me down. I promise you're safe here. It's gone, I promise. He drifted off. That night, I dreamed that the creature had followed us. I saw from its point of view as it followed our car towards Brian's apartment. I saw as it watched us get out from the car and head inside, and I saw as it crawled into bed behind me, holding me in place. Don't move, it hissed, its hot breath on my ear. I woke up in a cold sweat. Brian was sound asleep beside me, looking peaceful as ever. I went to the kitchen and got myself a glass of water. I put on my warm, fuzzy house coat over top of my pajamas and stood outside on the balcony. Some fresh air would do me good, I thought to myself. It was 3.20 in the morning and there I was on the balcony on the 7th floor, contemplating a cigarette. I wanted to quit ever since I had taken ownership of my brothers, but on that balcony, I felt as though I had so desperately needed one. Feeling ashamed of myself for even considering one, I threw the only cigarette I had off the balcony. I needed to get a hold of myself before I returned home. I couldn't let Zack see me like this. Gabe would scold me if you were here, I thought. Wiping tears off my face, I looked around the tree line. I was just starting to regain my composure when I noticed something out of place. In the tree line was the deer skull. The horrid creature's body was undoubtedly attached to it. It just stared at me. I whirled around and nearly dove inside Brian's apartment. I slammed the balcony door shut and locked it. As I headed to make sure the front door was locked, Brian intercepted me, forcing a scream out of me. What's the matter, Christina? Brian held me by the arms. I wouldn't stop wailing. All that I could get out was, It's following me. In between the sobs, he held me in a close hug until I was calm enough to explain my nightmare and about the creature I saw mere moments ago. Stay here, 
he said as he headed towards the balcony and took a look outside. I watched as he unlocked the door and stepped out into the balcony. A chill went down my spine, but not because of the wintry night air flowing into the apartment. Brian just stood there, staring at one spot. After a long pause, he slowly backed into the apartment, not taking his eyes off the creature outside. I knew he saw it. I knew he believed me. I could see it in his face. His eyes wide with fear. His mouth only slightly ajar. Without looking at me, he said, The parking lot is in the back of the complex. Get your things. We can't stay here. Are you crazy? That thing is outside. It's following me. I nearly yelled, panic setting in. I felt as though I was going to vomit. That thing, it told me. Brian was in terror. I don't know how, but it told me that it was going to come inside. I gasped, tears streaming down my face. We have to go, he urged. I grabbed his hand and he grabbed his keys and we rushed out the front door. We ran to the elevator and rapidly hit the down button. I decided that taking these stairs was faster and bolted through the door towards the stairs, Brian following right behind me. Reaching the stairwell, I looked to the bottom before descending the stairs. About halfway down on the first flight, I heard heavy tapping coming from the bottom. I leaned over the banister and saw the undead deer creature making its way up to the stairs. Brian nearly bumped into me as I spun around and sprinted up the stairs, crying and screaming. He followed my lead without question. As I headed towards the elevator, doors just beginning to open. We both cramped ourselves into the elevator, and Brian rapidly pushed the ground floor button. Just as the double doors slowly closed, we saw the stairwell doorway open, and the animal snout making its way towards us. We held each other, Brian verbally praying and me regretting most of my past life's choices. Ground floor and parking, the elevator dinged, cueing us to make our hasty escape. We ran like our lives depended on it, because in those long moments, and they did. On our way to Brian's car, I slipped and fell into the snow. Brian, who was ahead of me, turned around and prepared to help me up. No, go, start the car, go! I yelled frantically as I slowly made my way to my feet. He spun around and ran towards the car again. I took one step forward and fell to my knees, pain pulsing through my ankle. I loudly groaned in pain, clenching my teeth. I managed to get to my feet and half limp, half jog to the car. Just as I closed the passenger door, the front doors of the apartment complex were violently torn from their hinges. The creature held nothing back as it sprinted on all fours towards the car. Hang on. Brian shifted the car into drive and floored it. Normally, the wintry road conditions would have evoked anxiety in me, but right now, I felt as though Brian wasn't driving fast enough. I kept my eyes glued to the rearview mirror, watching the creature gallop towards us, its skinny form seemingly moving in unnatural angles with each step. Are you alright? Brian asked with a deep concern, his eyes trained on the road ahead. I think that I broke my ankle, 
I managed to get out in between breaths. He cursed under his breath. I don't think we can get you to the hospital with that thing right on us. Brian thought out loud. Did you bring your phone? I asked him. I'm going to call the police. No, I left mine at the apartment. Brian said plainly. I quietly sobbed as I too had left my phone in the rush. We are going to die tonight, aren't we? I said out loud, not wanting an answer. No, babe, don't say that. Things are going to be fine. We'll make it out of this. Will we? Will we actually, Brian? I yelled at him, tears streaming down his face too. He was terrified, just like me, and yet, he was trying to protect me and keep me calm. I stumbled an apology in between stops, but Brian cut me off. It's gone. He slowed the car to a stop and looked all around. Where did it go? It's gone. Where did it go? I too began to look around, unease settling in. I'm not sure what was more horrific. Seeing the creature pursue us or not being able to see it, would feel that it was still there. We sat there in the car for a long while, just looking around desperately. In the distance down the road, I noticed headlights. I pointed them out to Brian and he flashed his high beams off and on. The car pulled over to the side of the road and Brian got out to talk to the driver. I bit my lip, not enjoying the idea of Brian getting out of the car. Please, call the police. We need an ambulance too. I heard Brian talk to the driver. Just as Brian made his way back to the car, the creature came out of the darkness and took him in its grasp. It happened so quickly. He was just gone. Only a few drops of blood on the ground to prove that he was even there. The man in the car across the road screamed and sped off. I sat there stunned and no doubt in shock. The monster rammed into my passenger side door head first, breaking me from my trance. It broke through the window and shoved its face towards me. I struggled against my seatbelt and repeatedly kicked it in its hollow skull. It caught my leg in its mouth and clamped its jaws down hard. I screamed from the pain, blood pooling around my wounds. I heard the horrific sound of my leg being bitten through as the beast crunched through my bone. All I could do was scream. Biting down on my other leg, it pulled me through the window. I screamed for my life, but it was no use. With ease, it had flung me face first into a nearby tree, and everything went black instantly. My entire body seared with pain as blurry images of men and women in police uniforms and rescue uniforms loaded me onto a bed and into an ambulance. I was drifting in and out of consciousness. When I had finally come to full consciousness, I was in a hospital bed and hooked up to countless pieces of machinery. I had a feeding tube and an oxygen tube in me. My arm had an IV in it, heartbeat monitors attached to my chest. The nurse reading my file gasped when she saw me awake and rushed out of the room. The PA system announced several doctors to where I assumed I was located. Within minutes, the doctors were unhooking the feeding tube and oxygen tube, as I had no longer needed them. 
We expected you to be in a coma for at least another month. One of the doctors explained to me after the tubes were removed. Another month? I asked before clearing my throat. It still felt as though I had those plastic tubes shoved on my throat. You were out for six weeks. You were in a very brutal car accident. While waiting for the emergency vehicles to arrive, you were attacked by an animal. It was a very horrible scene. I blankly stared at him. Don't you remember, Christine? He cocked his head to the side and gave me a quizzical look. It's... it's Christina. I corrected him. And no I don't. I lied. I laid there for four hours, remembering the horrible nightmare that happened to me nearly two months ago. My whole body ate and pulsed with pain. I could hardly move. I thought about Brian for the longest time. I assumed that he had to be dead, but he had shown up later that night. I came as soon as I heard that you were awake. He told me as he leaned over and kissed my forehead. After the creature had attacked me, it went for you. I watched as it threw you against the tree. I tried to pull it off of you, but it threw me away. It told me that it wanted you. It told me that you saw something that you weren't supposed to see, Brian explained. By the time the police and ambulances showed up, the creature had already left. I never saw it leave. It was just somehow gone. I rode with you in the back. The officers recorded it as a bear attack. They didn't believe my story. Brian went on to say that he was administered into the hospital for a day, with only flesh wounds and stitches. He said that he and my brothers and parents visited me nearly every day or so. My parents came. I asked, stunned. He nodded, giving me a half-smile. In fact, they gave me a call on my way here. They're headed up with your brothers. They said that they'll try to get here before breakfast. When they got the call that you were awake, they pretty much dropped what they were doing and hopped in the car. I teared up and smiled. What did you tell them about what happened? The police told them what they thought had happened. I went with it because I want them to like me. I giggled, and then I struggled to sit up. Brian rushed over to give help and sit me up. I reached down to scratch my leg, but I couldn't quite find the spot. Hey hon, can you help me? I've got an itch and I can't reach it. I'm too sore to be reaching down. I looked at Brian and he smiled back at me. Sure babe, whereabouts? My left leg, just below the kneecap. Brian went pale suddenly. What's wrong? I removed the blankets as a wave of adrenaline washed over me. Both of my legs were gone from just above the knees. I was still coping with my handicap when my younger brothers accompanied by my parents rushed into the room and nearly knocked the wind out of me in a big hug each. Guys, I'm okay, I'm alright. I laughed a little out loud from pure happiness. They said that you might not wake up. Zach stopped as he held me close. Yeah, they, they were talking to mom and dad about having to pull the plug on you, Gabe said grimly. Oh guys, doctors aren't always right. Look, I'm fine. And then I looked at my parents, both of them clearly holding back tears. 
We love you so much, Christina. Don't you ever go thinking otherwise. My mom's voice was on the verge of breaking. Come back and live with us, okay? You'll be needing someone to look after you. My father chimed in. I'll have Gabe, I started. We've moved back in with mom and dad, Gabe said, giving me a warm smile. I looked over to Brian, who gave me a you-should-listen-to-them look with a smile to top it off. I'll come back home. When they let me out of here, I couldn't finish. I cried of happiness. My parents loved me after all. My parents embraced me in a hug each and my dad stepped out of the room to talk to one of the nurses. How was the drive up? I asked my mom, wiping a tear from my face. Mo, oh, not too bad. The first few hours there was a little snow but once we had passed through Toronto, it wasn't too bad. Oh, nice. I trailed off. Oh, oh, Chrissy. Zach grew excited. I saw something really cool on the drive up. Oh, yeah, that's right. Go on, tell your sister. My mom encouraged. It was a bear-looking creature, but it was wearing this animal skull. I think it was a deer skull. And the bear looked real skinny and tall. Isn't that something? My mom looked at me. I just looked at Brian. I knew I was probably as pale as he was in that moment. I didn't see anything. Gabe stated, matter-of-factly. I ignored him. Yeah, I saw it too, but Gabe missed it. I don't think your father saw it. My mother's voice grew distant as I stared at Brian. Are you okay? You don't look so good. Someone asked me, but I wasn't sure who. Maybe you should all go home early. I'll bring Chrissy back when she's out of the hospital. Brian said, You all have lives to get back to. Oh, Brian, that's so sweet of you, but we'll pass. We've got a hotel room nearby and we took the boys off school. My mom said in her fake, cheery voice. Mom, I stated in the most serious tone that I could muster up. Listen to me very carefully. You have seen something that you weren't meant to see. That thing, it's on its way right now. I teared up. It's coming to find you. And little Zacky. Our local officer isn't human. Written by Danger Dyer. My experience with Conway Cat was less than positive. Though, unless you're the victim of a crime, I can't imagine any running with the law is positive. I had seen him around before, patrolling either on the street or in his car. I can't say that I ever saw him without that uniform though. I had friends whose kids made up rumors and stories about him. Cat was already a tall guy. So, to them, he must have been gigantic. My neck hurts just thinking about it. It was late in the evening, and I had been out drinking. It was a bad day for me. My job was getting stressful. 
There was talk of layoffs and my friends couldn't find the time to join me. So, I drank a little more than normal. Not the best idea, I know. But things felt like they were about to go to crap. So, I just did what I wanted while I could. I didn't have the money for a taxi with everything I had spent. It got away from me. I sat in the car for a while, but I got pretty impatient and kind of anxious just sitting there in the night. Since no one else was on the pavement or the road, I decided to just go ahead and start driving. There wasn't anyone else really on the road at that time, so I guess that I felt free to drive. But he was there. I didn't encounter him until I had gone nearly a block. But by the time that I saw his car, his sirens were already on and he was already following me. It was annoying, but I didn't really have a choice but to pull over. I'll give my best shot at describing what he looked like, but I'm no writer. Even though his last name was Cat, there was nothing feline about him. He was a towering hulk of a man, at least six foot, maybe even seven if I had to guess. He wore a hat, but in his car's headlights, I could see the short brown hair on the sides of his head. His eyes were strange. They were hazel, but there was a dullness to them, like their color was slightly faded. It reminded me of old wallpaper. I was uncomfortable on my seat, like I was one of those kids looking up at him as he passed them without a word during the day. Going a bit fast there, weren't you? He said gently. I was about to say something in protest to apologize or at least defend myself in whatever way would get through this quickly. But I just sat there, like my mind, vocal cords had shorted out and just nodded. I'm a rebellious person, and I don't like being screwed over. I've got myself into arguments, even a few fights, and I'll go over a bill to make sure I'm not shortchanged by even a penny. But here, all of that rolled off my tongue. Let's go, son. After he said that, he walked back to his car, not even looking back, like he just expected me to go with him. And I did. I followed him while his back was turned, and stepped into the back of the police car once he had opened the door for me. I stepped in, not even handcuffed. The drive to the police station was a blur. It was like my mind flickered on and off during the whole journey. I remember one thing clearly about that ride. I looked into the rearview mirror where I could see Cat's face as he drove, looking back at me. 
Our eyes met in that mirror for a moment, like a staring contest. But it didn't take long for me to look away. But he didn't stop looking at me. I started to sweat and felt a little dehydrated. The best way that I can describe it is like a desert. Like I was stranded and succumbing to heat stroke with no one there to help me. The only one that knew where I was was the sun beating down on me. Cat looked at me for a good while, but even though it was blurry, what I'm most sure about is that he was still driving. It gets blurry again after that, but a little later, he told me to get out of the car and follow him. I have never sleepwalked before, but it felt like I was sleepwalking while awake. My next clear memory is the slamming of the cell door. It was like a fog had cleared. I was on the floor when I felt normal again and looked up to see Cat standing just outside of the door, looking down at me from the window in the door, the only window in the room. His face was full of disgust, but his eyes remained the same. He called me disgusting and laughed. I pushed myself up before pain ran through my body. When I checked my arms and shirt, I realized that I was covered in bruises, but didn't remember when or where I got them. Worry was running through my mind as I sat there. Where was I? How long was he going to keep me here? I was interrupted from my thoughts when I heard a knocking on my wall. It came from the holding cell next to mine. I hadn't realized someone was next to me, nor did I know how long they had been there. They must have been in the neighboring cell before I got here. I made my way up to the wall before knocking back and got another knock in return. Hello? I called out and then put my ear to the wall. Whoever it was said something, but I couldn't work out the words, and I assumed it was probably the same for them when I spoke. The hours went by, and we occasionally would knock on the walls, because even though we couldn't actually talk, it was a relief to know that I wasn't on my own that someone else was there. I wasn't sure what time Cat came back. There wasn't a clock and my phone was gone. I was leaning against the wall when I heard footsteps in the hallway. I looked up to see him passing by my room. Soon after that, I heard a door swing open and hit the wall, making me jump. Even though sound could barely travel between the walls, I could hear his footsteps clearly after the door shut. 
The door was loud enough for me to hear even through the thick walls, but simple footsteps are another story. I shouldn't have been able to hear them at all, but they were somehow more audible than they had been in the hallway, like they were coming from the room I was in. Cat was making his way to the other side of the cell. He stopped when he reached the end of the room, and for a moment, things were silent. And then the screams came. You can call them scared, guttural, or harsh, but more than anything, they were pained. I can tell you now how clear those noises were. It was like the wall between us didn't even exist. The only positive thing I can say is that those screams barely lasted longer than the silence preceding them. But immediately after, there was a ripping sound. Something big had forcefully been torn and then dropped to the floor like a piece of garbage. I heard a splash as if something had been tossed into a puddle. It went silent after that but I kept listening. At first, I thought it was silent, but when I paid more attention and put my ear to the wall, there was a low sound coming from the other room. I didn't realize what it was at first, but when I did, I removed my ear, but the sound remained the same, along with a terrible stench. After a few minutes, the neighboring cell's door opened again. Only this time, it was more gentle, and I didn't hear him walk. A moment after the door slammed shut, I saw him standing outside my cell. When he turned to look at me, I flinched. I felt like I was burning up like before but this time was far worse. I could feel the sweat building up between my fingers and toes while my skin almost looked sunburned. My heart was pumping before, but it went even faster now, and I started to wonder if I would succumb to heat stroke or a heart attack first. My throat and mouth went dry and I started to cough, bringing me forward enough to keep over. I stared up at him. His eyes were still on me. I tried to beg for it to stop, but I couldn't stop coughing long enough to get a word out. The heat only got worse. If I stopped coughing, I might have started screaming instead. But I was proved wrong when I couldn't cough anymore, and I started to suffocate. I cried knowing he was still watching me squirm on that concrete floor. I must have passed out, because I woke up on that floor. Everything was silent, and I couldn't smell anything, so... I got as comfortable as I could on the bench again. Cat was gone, 
The burns, I couldn't feel anymore. But the bruises ached. I knocked on the wall but got no answer. I didn't know how much time had passed as I waited there. The waiting was the worst part. Not knowing whether or not he was going to come back and sat in the corner. Things felt better near those two walls, more stable. It was daytime when I was let out, not by Cat, but someone else. He led me out and sent me on my way. When we walked by the cells, I looked into my neighboring room. It was completely empty. When I asked the policeman about it, he looked confused and told me that there wasn't any record of anyone there over the last 24 hours. Something told me that I should drop it, even though it bothered me. More than anything, I wanted to get out of there. I haven't had any run-ins with the police, especially Kat, since then. Whether shifts had gotten switched around, or I just didn't spend as long outside that pub, I didn't know. But as long as I didn't see him again, it didn't matter. Sometimes I did see him in the distance though, recognizing that huge frame and police uniform. His back was always turned, which meant that I could go the other way without being seen. But still, sometimes I feel like he can see me even when his back is turned. When I'm inside, sometimes I start to sweat, or my heart beats a little too fast, and I think that he's there. A few days after the encounter, someone knocked at my door. When I answered it, there was no one there. The only indication that there was anyone there was a terrible stench. I died and met my guardian angel. He was never trying to protect me. Written by Christopher Maxim Get the paddles! Uh, I remember falling. It was nice at first. The air rushing past me as the butterflies in my stomach multiplied with each passing second. Clear! Then, there was the screaming... Not from my mouth, but from the pedestrians below. Scrambling to run away from the landing zone. Some to get help. Others to avoid blood splatter at all costs. Clear. It wasn't until the last second, just before hitting the pavement, that the shock wore off and I realized what had happened. I was on the 12th floor balcony of a hotel in town. Enjoying the view when the railing gave way, crumbling beneath my grab. There was no chance of avoiding the descent. Clear. 
They say your life flashes before your eyes when you're about to die. I wouldn't go that far, but I understand the sentiment. In my final moments, there on the operating table, I thought of them. The most important facets of my life. My wife and daughter. His pulse keeps dropping. I would never get to see Leslie grow up. Never get to teach her how to drive or walk her down the aisle at her wedding. And Charlotte. We had our issues. That's why I was staying at the hotel in the first place. But we knew it was a forever deal from the start. Now that forever was over, cut short by a building code of violation of all things. One more. Clear. As my vision wavered, I saw something in the corner of the room. Not a something, but a someone. A man in turn of these century attire, leaning against the wall with a cane at his side. No one paid him any mind. He simply stood there and smiled. We're losing him. As I took my last breath, the man in the corner said something. In its battered state, my brain couldn't comprehend the message. Looking back, I now know what it was. See ya on the other side, Jack. Some say after kicking the bucket, there isn't anything. Your brain dies and your soul along with it. With no further capacity for consciousness, your mind cannot carry on past your body's expiration. I can tell you from experience, this is not the case. Between the operating room and the hereafter, there wasn't so much as a second of nothingness. No lapse in thought whatsoever. One minute I was in the hospital, the next I was in the afterlife. As seamless as a pawn progressing to its next square. Hello, Jack. At first, I couldn't see anything. There was an overwhelming brightness flooding my field of view. No, oh, it's alright. Your eyes will adjust. Give it a moment. After a few seconds, the scene came into focus. I was seated at a table in the center of a plain white room, with no windows or doors to speak of. Sitting across from me was the strange man from the hospital. Where am I? I asked. Why, this is heaven, of course. He said proudly. Heaven? So I'm dead. He let out an apologetic sigh. Yes, you've ridden your train as far as it could go. End of the line, Jack. He offered condolences in the form of a concerned look, complete with an awkward frown. Who are you supposed to be then? An angel. He smiled. Not just any angel, Jack. I'm your angel, assigned to you since your birth. Assigned to me? What does that mean exactly? Were you watching over me, protecting me? His boisterous laughter filled the room and echoed off the walls. Watching over you, sure. Protecting you, quite the contrary. 
I'm the one who loosened that railing and sent you spiraling to the ground. My heart sank. What? You killed me. Why? Honestly, Jack, to get it over with. My wife and daughter were not alone out there in the world. With that terrible thought in mind, I stood up and I slammed my fist onto the table. What are you talking about? His face turned sour. It wasn't likely that very many people talked to him that way. Sit down. Now. He raised and lowered his hand in one fluid motion, and I was seated again, against my will. He then stood up and leaned in as far as the table between us would allow. Here's how things work, Jack. When you die, your angel takes over. They possess your meat suit and get an equal share of time on Earth. If you live for 30 years, the angel rides you for 30 more and experiences life outside of these white walls. The longer we wait, the more time we get. But some of us are impatient. Yours truly, for instance. I tried to respond, but no words came out. It seemed the power pinning me in place was also keeping me quiet. Life here, it's insufferable. Rules and order. The same miserable goings on, day in and day out. I can't take another minute of it. That's why I pulled the plug early. I can visit Earth whenever I want, and even manipulate events to my liking. But it's not the same. With the vessel, I can finally be seen and touched. I can experience human interaction, and all of the pleasures therein. Sex, love, hunger, ambition. Things I've never felt before. I need this, Jack. More than you know. He backed away and sat down. Whatever hold he had over me was then released, allowing me to speak again. So, this is it. My life's over and you take the wheel. I don't get a say in this at all. He let out a sigh of disappointment. Actually, you do. Every soul is given two options. He snapped his finger and a pair of documents appeared on the table, along with the silver pen. First option, authorize my claim of ownership over your body and join me on Earth. You will have no control over our actions, but will at least get to experience life again in some small way. My turn to play, your turn to watch. That didn't sound like an attractive option. What's my other choice? He scoffed. Second option. Get thrown into the Fragmenter with all of the other lost souls. You will be torn apart, reassembled, and torn apart again. It'll take thousands of years before you are completely obliterated and allowed to rest. That wasn't exactly ideal either. If I choose the first option, what happens after your time is up? I come back to heaven and get assigned a new case, and you're thrown in the fragmenter anyway. It's a buffer, really. A period of time in which you can brace yourself for the inevitable. I couldn't believe it. Heaven. It was supposed to be your final resting place. Somewhere that you can exist in peace after death. 
At least, that's how it was always depicted in books and movies. In truth, it was a nightmare. I'm dreaming, right? In a coma at the hospital, dreaming about what comes after. None of this is real. It can't be. The man chuckled. No, it's real, Jack. Here, let me show you. He reached across the table and placed a hand on my forehead. All at once, we were transported to the hospital, standing over my corpse as the doctors left the room. What is this? What's happening? Calm down, Jack. It's called projected travel. We're still up there. This is just a glimpse of what's happening down on Earth. Charlotte walked in, tears streaming down her face. Charlotte! She can't hear you, Jack. One of the doctors put a hand on her shoulder. I'm so sorry. I can give you a minute, but we really need to clear the room. She ran to my side, now sobbing uncontrollably, and placed her head on me. Why did you leave, Jack? Why? I reached out to touch her, but my hand went right through. It's all my fault. We never should have fought. You should have been home with us. I wanted so badly to tell Charlotte she wasn't to blame for any of this, to hold her and say that it would all be okay. But I couldn't, and that killed me inside. We still need you, Jack. Come back to us. I've turned to the man, now crying myself. I've seen enough. Take us back, now. Suit yourself. He snapped his fingers and we were back in heaven, seated across from one another at the table. So, what'll it be, Jack? Endless torment? Or some more time on Earth and then endless torment? Personally, I'm partial to the latter. I didn't like either option, but it was now abundantly clear which one to choose. I'll take the fragmenter. It's the only thing that will destroy the sorrow that I'm feeling, even if it does take thousands of years. If I'm going there either way, I might as well get it over with. I grabbed the pen and began signing the appropriate contract. The man pulled my hand away. Now, don't be so impulsive, Jack. We have time. Think it over a bit. Tell you what, I'll even let you see your family from time to time. We can check in on them if you want. That's even more of a reason to choose the Fragmenter. I don't want them ever seeing you in my body. He looked absolutely devastated. I took my hand back and continued signing. No, I can't let you do this, Jack. Before I could get to the last signature block, the man ripped the paper out from underneath the pen. What are you doing? I made my choice. I accept my fate. No, I'm not staying here, Jack. I can't sit through another person's life. You're going to let me in whether you like it or not. His eyes turned black and his mouth opened up, revealing a set of razor-sharp teeth. Before I could react to the transformation, I was pushed up against the wall by an unseen forest. He leapt over the table, grabbed me by the neck and ran his hand down my arm. 
His now dagger-like nails caressed my skin, just enough to reveal slivers of red beneath the surface. Sign the deal, or I'll fragment you myself, piece by piece. I think you'll find that I can be very creative when it comes to methods of torture. There are far worse fates than death, and I can assure you, I'm the worst one of all. His breath was toxic, putrid flames spilling out of his mouth and climbing into mine, creating a cancerous taste on my tongue that made me want to vomit. If this was a preview of things to come, there was no doubt in my mind he was telling the truth. Regardless, I stood my ground. No, I choose this over letting you in. You can rot here with me. He growled and tossed me across the room. I fell to the floor like a ragdoll. Plan B, then. A snap of his fingers and he was gone, replaced with an old film projector that now rested on the table. As I stood up, it powered on, projecting a scene onto the wall ahead. It was Charlotte and Leslie on the drive home from the hospital. Where's Daddy? Charlotte looked to Leslie through the rearview mirror, crying, but trying her best to hold it in. Daddy's not with us anymore, sweetie. Leslie tilted her head, confused. Where is he? Charlotte wiped some of her tears away, though they were quickly replaced with more. He's in a better place now. If only she knew. When will he be home? Charlotte couldn't hold back anymore. She was now sobbing. What's wrong, Mommy? She couldn't answer right away, barely able to catch her breath while crying. Leslie, sweetie, Daddy's not with us anymore, okay? I'm sorry, but he's gone. He's never coming back to us. She continued to sob while Leslie put the pieces together. No, he can't be gone. No, not daddy. My little girl began crying and my heart shattered into a million pieces. Charlotte reached back and held her hand as tightly as she could. They were in so much pain. And I couldn't lift a finger to help them. I turned away. It was too much. Is this your big plan? Emotional torture. I'm still not going to say yes to you. You hear me? There was a brief period of silence followed by a voice from behind. Look again, Jack. I turned back and saw him. Not in the room with me, no. He was in the projection sitting in the passenger seat next to my wife, waving back at me. She didn't seem to notice him at all. What the heck are you doing? His lips contorted into a wicked grin. Watch this, Jack. He grabbed the steering wheel and jostled it back and forth. Charlotte did her best to gain control, but the car was swerving all over the place. No, stop it! He released the wheel and looked back at me. Agree to my terms, or they die. Which will it be? My heart was pounding. Fear nestled in the pit of my stomach. I didn't want to give in, but I no longer had a choice in the matter. Letting him take my flesh for a joyride was a small price to pay for my family's safety. 
Fine, I'll do it. Good choice, Jack. Another snap of his fingers and he returned. The projector now gone. He held out the paper and pen to me, undoubtedly anxious to claim his prize. Sign. As I looked over the contract, I noticed the structure of the final signature block. In addition to mine and the angel signatures, an overseer was required to sign. Who's the overseer? Is that your boss? I asked. Nothing that you need to worry about. Now sign. It was probably nothing, but I was curious. Well, it says here the overseer needs to witness the signing. He flinched every time I uttered that word. Oh, he will. The moment the pen touches the page, he sees what you see. Now sign it already. An idea came to mind. It was a long shot, but definitely worth trying before hanging over my body once and for all. The moment the pen touches the page, huh? He nodded but snarled in the process, folded the brim with impatience and disdain. This would be my one and only chance. It was now or never. Sign it now, Jack. I put the pen to the dotted line, but it didn't jot on my signature. Instead, I scribbled out a message of three words. Overseer, come help. The man grabbed the page and examined it. How could you? He reached out to grab me, but his arm was pulled away. There was now another man standing at his side. Uh, overseer, I'm sorry, I... Save it. With a wave of his hand, the overseer brought the man to his knees and erased his mouth altogether. He then fell flat on the floor and writhed in pain. Without an audible indication of discomfort, the sight was somehow even more disturbing. I swallowed the lump in my throat and took a step back, hoping that I hadn't just submitted myself to a similar fate. Okay, Jack. What is it that you need? I took a single, preparatory breath and made my plea. Are there any other options for me? No. Fragmenter or Vessel. All of his responses were sparse and final. Clearly, not the kind of mince words or beat around the bush. Okay, that brings me to my next question. Having no knowledge of your customs or laws, I was just wondering if this angel's behavior was, for all intents and purposes, sanctioned. Behavior? He asked. Yes, you see. He had killed me and then coerced me into signing over my body by threatening my family's lives. Is that the sort of thing that's allowed here? His brows curled as he turned to the man on the floor. Hardly. With another wave of his hand, he released him. Is what the human says true? The man remained on the floor, now yet recovered from the pain. With no mouth, he simply shook his head to deny my claims. Fine, I'll see for myself. The overseer's eyes glowed blue as he reached down and held a hand to the man's head. After a minute or so, the light in his eyes faded and he turned to me. It seems you were telling the truth. His eyes then glowed red as he placed his hand back on the man, who now looked terrified. 
squirming in an attempt to flee. It was no use. In a fraction of a second, his body was eviscerated, turned to a pile of ash before my eyes. Your turn. He walked over to me and I backed into the wall. No, no please. He placed his hand over my heart. Time to set things right, Jack. This might burn a little. He was right. It was a fiery sensation that soon permeated my whole body. Then, just as I couldn't take any more, a beam of light shot through the floor and enveloped me. Soon after, I lost consciousness. As far as I could tell, I was done for. I sprung to life on the operating table, my lungs taking in as much air as they could in one breath. An orderly was nearby, cleaning up. Thoroughly startled, he nearly fell over onto the floor. Oh my god, you're alive! He ran to the door and called for help. Soon enough, a slew of doctors entered the room, astonished to see me breathing again. One of them, completely awestruck, pointed down on my chest. That mark, it wasn't there before. Everyone in the room was looking at it. A hand-shaped burn on my chest, right where the overseer had touched me. One of the nurses chimed in. Well, I'll be damned. They all scrambled to change my fluids and check my vitals. Other than the burn, there was nothing wrong with me. My injuries had healed with no medical explanation. As such, I was released shortly after, with a remarkably clean bill of health, in better shape than I was before the impact. As far as the doctors were concerned, it was a miracle. I tried calling Charlotte from the hospital's landline a dozen times, but there was no answer. It was my guess that she was too grief-stricken to be bothered by her phone. With no car or anyone else to call for a ride, one of the doctors agreed to bring me home after his shift. I couldn't wait to see my family again. After all was said and done, I arrived home around midnight. Thanks, Doc. I really appreciate this. He smirked. Don't thank me. I'm not the one who saved your life. You must have an angel up there looking out for you. I got out of the car and looked back at him before closing the door. God, I sure hope not. The doctor drove off and I ran inside, excited to share the good news and take away all the tears that shed in my name. Charlotte, Leslie, I'm home. After turning into the corner in my living room, I saw Charlotte sitting by herself on the sofa. Honey, I'm here. I'm still here. She remained motionless and silent. Honey, are you okay? Where's Leslie? She turned to me and, with the most stoic expression, offered me three words that cut my heart in two. Leslie's dead, Jack. The room started spinning. Anguish overcame me as I fell onto the couch next to her. No, it can't be. How? As the tears wet my face, I noticed that Charlotte didn't appear to be sad. Charlotte, why aren't you crying? What happened? Her face lacked any and all emotion. There was a car accident on the way home from the hospital. 
Just then, Leslie came down the stairs and sat next to her mother. Leslie, my little girl, you're okay. I reached for her, but Charlotte pushed my hand away. They didn't make it. We just wanted to see the man the overseer saved. Now that we have, we can leave. They stood up and headed for the door. That's when it sank in. The dread. The heartache. The realization. Charlotte turned around before leaving the room. Your wife signed a deal for the both of them. Their bodies belong to us now. I discovered documents warning about the end of the world. Written by King of Bread People. It took a few months, but you find the destroyed site that you were looking for. And it is honestly worse than you thought. The door is jammed, and it takes a bit of force to get it open. You squeeze in, and suddenly, it's like you entered into another world. Inside, you find an empty hallway covered in what looks like meat and bones. There is also some black liquid spread around the area. It is disturbing, and the smell is horrible. You feel like vomiting your insides out, but that might attract something. Eventually, you get used to it and move on. There are some strange things here. Some fire and smoke, along with a lighter that had a GR scratched on it. A broken down door with a burned corpse inside. Some rooms that looked like bedrooms for different people. One room had Chris drawn on the walls. The lights flicker while you walk past these weird things. They give you the resemblance of life, yet there is nothing here. Your footsteps are quiet, but at the same time, you feel like they are getting louder and louder by the minute. You find a door to what looks like a security office, but the door is locked. It takes a while, but you manage to break the lock. You find an old working computer in the middle of the room, along with a gun and a body in the corner of the room. You walk over to the screen, and there's more blood on it. Delightful, you think to yourself. You move the mouse and the screen changes. It has recordings of the news. Some documents and videos. You move the mouse to the recording files and click on them. You make sure that these speakers are quiet and the door is closed. The video shows a young woman, presumably a reporter, talking about the creatures. The date shows that it was one month into the outbreak. It feels like a lifetime ago. Do years of surviving really mess with time like that? Back then, you had just gotten home, when you found your friends in the house with pieces of themselves missing. You cried, screamed and begged for help, 
Yet that only brought uh, more of those things near your home. The video continued and showed the chaos around the city. Animals, people, everybody were being attacked by the creatures for their amusement. Some tried to run, but the unlucky ones got grabbed by those creatures, and they were done unspeakable things. The memories of having a gun, a bucket, and some food supplies around you at all times for the first few weeks came flooding back into your mind. You paused the video to stop yourself from crying from the painful memories, but also to make sure that there's nothing following you or in this building. After a few minutes of sitting in the corner, not saying anything and listening, you decide that it is safe for you to continue to look through the computer again. You look through the documents and find video recordings in it. Curiosity gets the better of you, and you click the file. The screen flashes a bit and shows you a figure standing and looking at the camera. He says in a calm tone, Entry 1 My name is John Smith. I am a leading scientist in the new virus that we have created. I am documenting my attempt to survive in the world that me and my colleagues created. Originally, the virus was meant to cure other illnesses and diseases by multiplying and overpowering the illness. Unfortunately, the virus also attacked the other cells in the body and at the same time multiplied and infected the individual who would soon become a writhing, wriggly mass, which became the creature. But me and my colleagues are working on a better future. The recording ends, and you are left to think about what was said. Eventually, you decide to watch the next recording, and the recording after that, and the recording after that. Entry number two. Things are looking better. Greg got the electricity working. He really knows his electronics and stuff. Jen is keeping the morale up like the angel she is. And Chris has made some improvements to the entrance. Meanwhile, the rest of us are working together to find a way to either cure the disease or find a way to start life again. All we can do now is pray for the best. Entry number three. Things seem to have changed, kind of. The power went out for the first time, and it was getting hard to get work done. I really feel tired, but hey, at least I'm not alone in the city. Entry number four. Chris decided to go out and find supplies. Jen objected, but he left anyway. I think Jen didn't like the fact that I didn't support her. The screen flickers and shows a tired, sad man 
who looks like he had been through the worst. He tries to talk in a positive voice, but you can hear the despair in his voice, like a part of him had just died. Entry number five. They never came back. We went out looking for them until his tracks disappeared. Jen cried all night after that. It feels like all the positivity has left her, like she has given up on being happy. We talked to her and told her if she needed somebody to talk to, then we were there to support her. Our project might have gotten us some new results, but we need to continue testing. Entry number six. In the middle of the night, we heard it knocking on the door. We all thought that it was a few of the infected people, and they were ready to attack us. But when we got to the doors and used the cameras to look outside, we saw Chris. Parts of him had fallen off, and other parts were missing and he almost didn't look human. Jen had to be held back when she saw him. For a few days, he continued to knock on the door, asked us to let him in, kept telling Jen he was alright, and other insane stuff. We honestly hated having to hear that. Hopefully the cure is almost finished. The screen flickers for the sixth time, but this time, the figure is standing in a different room. You hear indistinguishable noises coming from the video. Entry number seven. Jen opened the gates last night and just ran away. We don't know what happened to her, but I hope she is in a better place. Anyway, the creatures got in, and many of us were attacked, or worse. Greg got grabbed by his leg, and one of them almost ripped it off. Thankfully, fire is somewhat effective, so using Greg's lighter that he uses to smoke, I got the things to let him go. The sound of doors breaking is heard in the recording. Greg, get ready. We have to move. Entry number eight. Greg was infected. I offered to put him out of his misery, but he said that he wanted to go out on his own. I left him behind, and now I'm hiding in a security office. I have a gun just in case, some food and water and my laptop. This might be the last hope for humanity. Entry number nine. Life truly is a mystery. I found something. Some documents. It turns out that this was the site administrator's office. And there were some documents on the table. What I found on them, I can't explain. But if anybody is watching, then know that the virus and outbreak and all that, 
it was planned. There was some secret, some mystery that these site owners had, and they didn't want the world to know. Maybe they wanted to see what happened, or maybe they just had some more sinister motives. I don't care anymore. All hope is lost. I'm going to end this recording once and for all. But just know that whatever you find in those files, they are truly horrible. I never believed in God, nor heaven, or hell. But wherever I end up, it has to be better than this. The tape ends and the whole room is silent again. In the corner of the room is the body of Dr. John Smith. He has been dead for a long time. You look for some files under the laptop, wanting to know what drove the man mad and what he was talking about. Eventually, you find the document inside the computer, labeled as MI666. You open the files, but they just have scrambled garbage on it. It read, Document MI-666 1. Do you have the virus? Yeah, I do, but what about the other members? Forget about them. This is more important. We have to kill it. But what about the people? If we suddenly drop this virus into the world, out of thin air, the people will think something is wrong. Won't the other 11 members suspect us? I already told them about our plan. We can't wait anymore. Just make up a cure for some other disease, something like that going wrong. But will this thing kill it? We have to hope. If any human comes into contact with it, then they have to be taken out with this. And what if it fails? Then what? Then humanity will be remembered as the creatures that tried to fight it. Now, we have no more time to waste. Start the spread if you don't want to end up like 14. Yes, sir. And report. You don't understand what any of that means. It's so frustrating that you slam your hands onto the table. Even worse is that you suddenly hear a noise out in the corridor. You don't know if it was just in your head, another survivor, or one of the infected. You peek out the door and see the face of a man melting off while keeping a huge smile on his face. He tries to walk into you and grab you. You pull away and grab the laptop along with your supplies. You run down the hallway, hearing more and more voices call out to you. You find an office that is empty and you slam the door shut. You lock and barricade it to make sure that nothing gets in or out. You fall to your knees to rest from all that running and adrenaline. You feel the cold air coming through the vents 
and feels safe until the door starts to get hit. You don't know what to do. You decide that even if you can't survive this, you will try to stop others from coming here. Your hands shake while writing everything that happened. Maybe somebody will find out what the text means. Maybe they will be warned about coming to this area. Or, at the very least, they will now know that there are documents about the end of the world. I met someone who claimed to be cursed by God. Written by Never Been Here Before Zero. I was never an avid believer in the divine. Not since I was a little girl, anyway. If anything, I used to mock the concept of a deity. Even though I was raised in a Catholic household with my mother, my father, and my three younger siblings, religion never quite grew on me the way it did the rest of my family. Every time that I folded my hands together in praying, I would always be left dissatisfied upon being met with no answer from the Lord himself. Just silence. Needless to say, as I got older, the struggles of adapting to adulthood came crashing down on me on various occasions. Bullying, depression, and things like that became a daily part of my routine. And I found a different sense of God in things like bottles of alcohol or packets of cigarettes as a result. Not to say that I became addicted in my youthful years. But if you were to ask me who I'd prefer to return to in an hour of need, a pack of Marlboro would put God to shame any day. After I graduated high school, I moved out of my home into a cheap apartment on the outskirts of town to get away from my family. In a sense, it put more distance between me and God, if anything. Since going to college was out of the question with my grades, I settled for simple jobs. Some of them were easy, others not so much, but at some point, I landed a job as a bartender in the local area. The work was simple enough and I got the hang of it, and the pay wasn't the worst either. So, it was perfect for me. It beat retail by a mile or two at the very least. Well, it used to. However, given recent events... I can never quite look at a bottle of wine in the same way. In fact, I'm just about ready to attend church again, though not for the reasons that you might imagine. I tell this story sometimes when I'm out and whoever happens to sit next to me is willing to lend an ear or two. Of course, few if any people believe it, even when drunk, and I can't blame them. To this day, I don't know if I believe it myself, but one thing is certain. I will never scoff at religion ever again. It was at 2 o'clock on a Saturday night, and I was working alone. Considering that the area the bar was located at wasn't too large, we didn't have a lot of people coming by at once, so it was easy to tend to the place by myself. Sure, some customers were trickier than others, but I knew enough to keep myself safe from whatever shenanigans drunk patrons could hide up their sleeves. 
And then something strange happened. A young boy, hardly old enough to enter a bar, much less buy a drink, approached the counter. His hair was short but ashen, as if age had already claimed some attributes from his otherwise youthful appearance. And he wore peculiar clothes that looked like they didn't quite belong to this decade. I was confused at first, to say the least, but also slightly amused. At times, we had underage kids trying to sneak in with fake IDs, but they were usually discreet about their infiltration. This kid, on the other hand, wasn't even trying to keep his intentions in the dark. He didn't even look like he intended to drink. May I have an ID, kid? I asked and leaned over the counter, hand outstretched as I waited for something I knew wouldn't arrive. I don't have any. He replied carelessly, Well, the crap, then I can't serve you. Come back in a few days and then maybe we'll see. I added humorously and gestured for him to use the door. But the boy didn't as much as move. He simply stared at me, eyes shining like liquid gold in the dark of the bar. His smile stretched a bit further up his cheeks and I would be lying if I said that it didn't slightly unnerve me even if he was just a child. Can I ask you something, miss? He finally said after a couple of minutes of deliberate silence. I initially intended to tell him that he had to leave, but for reasons I couldn't quite decipher, I decided to humor his inquiry. What is it? Do you believe in God? Whatever snarky response I had planned in the back of my brain soon came to an immediate halt as I processed those words. Did I believe in God? What kind of child would ask such a question in a bar of all places? That's an odd question, I answered. Why are you asking? He simply shrugged and leaned slightly over the counter as if to take a better look at me with those golden eyes of his. In turn, I straightened my back and tried my best to hide how uneasy this kid was making me feel by simply being there. It was as if his eyes could stare straight through my soul, assuming that I had one, and whatever secrets I intended to keep from him would come clean out of me if he just said the word. Why are you not answering? He asked innocently, but I could tell that there was something ulterior creeping beneath his childish facade that had yet to reach the surface. Having heard enough, I decided that it was time to send him home. Look kid, you can't be here, you need to leave. But as firm as my words may have sounded, goosebumps were spreading across my skin like wildfire and it was becoming increasingly difficult to keep myself composed. The boy's expression didn't falter in the slightest. They won't mind. He gestured to the few patrons who remained in the bar without breaking eye contact with me. They're too cooped up in their own worlds, stooping down in whatever fantasies their liquor can provide. They won't mind me sitting here for a few minutes. There was something unnatural about the way that he talked. His voice was light and youthful, 
as you would expect from someone who'd barely seemed like they were older than 14 at the most. But it didn't quite fit in my book. He didn't seem young. He looked ancient, older than those whose names have long vanished in the earth. Who are you? I finally asked. He proceeded to fold his hands together while resting his chin on top of them, tilting his head ever so slightly to give me a mesmerizing look that would remain ingrained in my brain for years to come. Joseph, he answered. To be honest, I have a lot of names, but you may call me Joseph to keep things simple. Joseph. The name of the Father of Christ came to mind. Where are you from? A little here and there, he answered haphazardly, as if he found the question boring enough to barely consider. But before you ask me any questions, miss, how about you answer mine first? Do you believe in God? Not necessarily, I replied. I consider myself agnostic in that regard. Agnostica? That's an interesting thing. How so? He raised a finger to point at me, something which caused me to instantly freeze where I stood. I couldn't tell if it was the underlying fear I had of this person, or some kind of control from his side, but the outcome was the same nonetheless. You believe in everything, yet nothing at the same time. Quite an oxymoron, wouldn't you say, miss? Before I could say anything in return, he slammed his hand onto the counter hard enough to cause a pen to roll to the floor. If you wouldn't mind, I would prefer to drink something. What can you offer me? It took me some time to gather my thoughts and form a sentence. My eyes landed on his slightly exposed wrists and it can make out what looked like severe bruises on his skin. They seemed to stretch as far up as his sleeves would permit me to see. It was clear that wherever this kid had come from, it wasn't good. I can't serve you any alcohol. The look he sent me could have melted steel and frozen water at the same time. It was a clear indicator that he was not in the mood to have his demands denied. I would prefer a glass of wine. I don't need much. Giving in to his request could very much cost me my job, not to mention a ton of lawsuits and his parents found out about this. I was sure to discover that Joseph's claim was indeed correct. None of the customers in the bar were looking at us. They were preoccupied, having a good time with whatever alcohol they had been served as if there was nothing in the world that bothered them. Or maybe there was something that bothered them, but the liquor had done its job and made them forget about it, if only temporarily. I never thought the sight of that could ever make me feel so much pity for someone, like those who were trapped in blissful ignorance. Sign, I poured half a glass of wine and put it on the counter, it was stupid of me, I know, but something told me that I was in for an unpleasant surprise if I thought that serving alcohol to a minor would become my biggest problem for the night. 
Joseph gave me an appreciative smile and reached for the glass. But he didn't drink it straight away like I thought he would. Instead, he just stared at it, shook the glass a bit to watch its content stain the sides of the transparent material, and then proceeded to tilt it up above him. That alcohol doesn't normally have an effect on me, he explained wistfully as he continued to inspect the red liquid in his hand. But this, this is the closest thing I can get to the paradise the Lord has denied me. What are you talking about? He lowered his glass down a bit and looked at me through it. His golden eyes are now covered in a red hue from where the wine had been. It was a mocking stunt from his side, you see. He made it so that nothing can relieve me from the agony I'm forced to endure. Except for this. He shook the glass a bit more, spilling a few drops on the counter. The blood of Christ, as they call it, right? His words weren't adding up at all, and for a moment, I debated calling the authorities. However, given that I'd already provided a miner with a glass of alcohol, it could land me in a ton of trouble. Was that a risk I was willing to take? I'm afraid you lost me. I crossed my arms over my chest and leaned against the back of the bar, eyeing him inquisitively for answers that could give me some insight about this guy. Joseph pulled the glass up to his lips and took a gracious sip of it. By the time that he was finished, half of its contents was gone. He closed his eyes and savored its flavor like a child eating candy for the first time in years. It's sweet. That's good. I can't stand the bitter side of wine. He put the glass down again and released a half-baked chuckle. This time, it wasn't light, nor did it sound very youthful. The laugh was low and melancholic, like a grown man on the verge of breaking down after years of containing his frustrations. It's ironic. I spend seconds mocking the sun, and now I'm forced to indulge in what is considered to be his blood in order to get a glimpse of heaven. The sun? Whose sun? I asked. His answer was not what I expected. God's son, of course, he uttered bitterly, his precious little baby. I wasn't sure if he was being metaphorical or serious, but from where I stood, I had a hard time believing he was being anything but mentally challenged at that point. Still, I kept calm and decided that it would be my best to keep the conversation going. You mean to tell me that you mocked Jesus Christ himself? I wasn't mocking him per se. Joseph explained and took a deep breath through his nostrils. I was criticizing him. For what? For what, she says, he mimicked. For dying. For giving his life to a lost cause. The poor fool. He died for our sins. I said, not realizing that I was defending the honor of a man I hadn't believed in since I was a child. Wasn't that the whole deal? To redeem us or something like that? 
Joseph looked up at me again, this time with a tired expression that could have made it seem like he hadn't slept in ages. He looked older now, by several years. The youthful boy who had walked into the bar but minutes earlier was nothing more than a shadow at this point, a long forgotten memory. And did that change anything? He asked. Are humanity void of guilt and sin to this day? Has world peace been achieved? Are children saved from the hands that hit and touch and corrupt? I've seen the world for what it is, and let me tell you, it's not been redeemed. He spent another moment trying to collect himself, and the smile that disappeared was back in place as though it never left. I was there when Jesus was sentenced by Pontius Pilate. I was there when he was forced to drag his cross across the earth and to his crucifixion. I was there as the nails were driven through his body. And I was there as he died on that cross. I was there throughout it all. With the way that he was retelling the story, I was almost tempted to believe this child. Granted, he talked and behaved as if he was much older than he looked like he was, but I wasn't quite convinced just yet that what he spoke was true. However, as I listened to his tale, I couldn't help but find it somehow familiar. The tale of someone who mocked Jesus Christ on the way to his execution was something that I had heard before, long ago when belief still resided in me. What did you mock him about? I asked. Joseph went quiet again, this time for much longer than he had before. The wine in his grip remained unmoved for the duration of his contemplative silence. And as I looked up at the clock, I realized that it wasn't too long until we closed. And then Joseph began to speak again, much quieter this time. I didn't mock him. I simply asked him why he did it. He explained. Why did you give up your life for something that cannot be remedied? I asked. Why do it when it won't change the outcome? Jesus Christ was an unbearably kind man. Of course, he had his flaws like any other person. But that kindness was what stood out about him. His love, his tolerance, his forgiveness. He was a good man, but he failed to see that humanity cannot be changed from what it already is, and telling him that was what earned me my sentence. He gulped down the rest of his drink in one go. It was made clear by that display that it wasn't the first time he had consumed alcohol, and I didn't know whether that impressed me or horrified me. If you were there when Jesus Christ was still alive, then how come you are, well, still alive? The moment I asked that question, the room seemed to freeze altogether. There was nothing there that appeared to move. The clock itself appeared to have stopped at 2.49, and as I glimpsed back at the few guests that were left in the bar, all I could see were shadows of those who were once there. Maybe I imagined it all, but something told me that whatever kind of power is this, this individual possessed, 
it could even make a non-believer doubt his ways in life. Joseph released a laugh so unnerving that the temperature dropped in the room. That's my sentence. He calmly explained after his laughter died out. Me calling out God and his beloved son on their flaws earned me a one-way ticket to damnation. And that is here. Without even looking at me, he reached for the bottle of wine that I left standing on top of the counter and poured himself another glass, this time to the brink. I can't leave this place as much as I want to. I can't die the way you perceive death. Sweet mess. I can never reach heaven or hell. I'm stuck in a never-ending purgatory of pain, agony, and misery. And that is the price I have to pay for questioning his supposed gospel. Contrary to what people might think, God's love is not unconditional, nor is he all that benevolent. He can be kind, but he can be cruel when he sees the need to be it. The sheer contempt that resonated through his words could have made the world shake and crumble to dust. It was clear to me now that this boy wasn't ordinary, but I guess I had already put that together when he first entered the building. What is your name? I asked again. Your real name? Joseph laughed at my question, but not as a way to taunt my ignorance. It seemed pitiful like he was simultaneously surprised but saddened over the fact that I had asked him that. I've had a lot of names throughout the years, he said. Some have disappeared with the dust that once settled beneath my feet, but others exist in books and scripts of old and can still be found if you search for them. Joseph is one of my names. The one that's easier to understand, but there's also Ahasuerus and Matthias. Then which one would you prefer? I asked. Which one would I prefer? To be honest, I don't have a preference anymore. But there is one name the people of the old faith still remember me by. He took me by my hand and shook it to mimic a greeting. His touch was cold to the bone, and I suppressed a shiver. If he noticed my discomfort, he didn't show it, or he simply didn't care. All he could do at that point was smile and introduce himself, as if we had just met. My name is uh, Cardophilus, but most people know me as uh, the Wandering Jew. All pieces of the scattered puzzle came together in my head. Yes, I had heard that story. The story of the Wandering Jew. The man cursed by God for taunting Jesus on his way to the crucifixion. Cursed to wander the earth until the second coming. Never to know the joys of heaven and the suffering of hell. Yet forced to endure both at the same time for his offenses. Joseph, or Cardophilus, promptly let go of my hand. There was once again a smile on his face. Do you believe me, miss? I wanted to deny the possibilities that he was speaking the truth. By God, I wanted to keep myself in a blissful state of ignorance and say that this child was disturbed, mentally ill, and in no reliable state of being. There was no way that this boy, this child, 
was the same man who stood by Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago. And yet a part of me believed him, even when I didn't want to. How can I know for sure? I asked, the skeptic within me coming back to life. If you truly are the wandering Jew, a man who existed so long ago, what kind of proof do you have? He must have expected this because he reached for my hand, and the moment our fingers touched, a light flashed before my eyes. Blood filled my vision. The cries and screams of men, women, and children rang in the distance as they were damaged beyond what the world thought could be possible. The sight of bloodied battlefields and corpses stretched for as long as my vision could reach, while echoes of war and chaos erupted from all around me. There was so much pain, so much sadness to be felt, but all I could do as I watched the hell around me escalate was scream. I cried and I screamed with the many people who were victimized by the grueling events until my throat became raw from exhaustion and pain. But no matter how much I screamed, no help came my way. Only sorrow and suffering accompanied me throughout it all, and I desperately begged for salvation. I looked at the skies and I screamed for the one I knew would not respond because he saw fit in making me suffer for my heinous crimes towards his beloved offspring. Almost as soon as it came, the visions disappeared and I was back in the bar, with tears streaming down my face and saliva pouring from my mouth by the ounces. I was a mess, and my throat still ate even though the lack of attention from the other patrons indicated that I hadn't done anything to warrant any weird looks. It's not fun, is it? Joseph asked innocently and tilted his head to the side, still holding my hand in his, as if it would bring me any consolation. I ripped my hand away from his like it was fire and quickly cleaned myself up with my sleeves. Words couldn't describe the agony that I was in. I wanted to beat the crap out of him for what he had done, make him feel as much pain as I felt. But something told me that he was already familiar enough with the sensation, so that it wouldn't have made a difference if I gave in to my anger. What the heck did you do to me? I was on the verge of screaming in his face, but I controlled myself just barely and kept my volume down to a hiss. Joseph was unfazed by my anger. Interesting way of putting it, miss. In any case... I guess it is hell. Do you believe me now? What was that? I seethed. The consequences of Jesus' sacrifice. As you can see, it was all for naught. I'm guessing you saw the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Not a fine sight, I'll admit. But what can one do? He sounded as if he was discussing the weather with me by the way his voice lacked any sign of being affected by what he had just shown me. In hindsight, I guess being alive for 2,000 years does something to a person's ability to face the seemingly unfaceable. Still shaken and sweating from the traumatic experience without caring, I reached for the bottle of wine that rested on the counter and downed the rest of its content. I knew it was illegal for me to consume any liquor while on shift, 
But given what I had just been through, I could care less about it. Are you alright, miss? Shut up. I snarled in between gulps. I must say, I'm impressed. The last person I gave such a sight to ended up being admitted to the closest psychiatric facility. You must have been through quite a lot in your life that you could stomach that. As I finished drinking the rest of the wine, my slandly bottled down on the counter hard enough to leave a significant mark, and I glared at the boy sitting across from me. Let's say I believe you for now, but how the heck are you so young? The wandering Jew that I read about was an old shoemaker or something. So why do you look like you just reached puberty? Ah, uh, that is a valid question. He placed a finger under his chin and tried to concoct a sufficient answer. As I said, I can't die the way you perceive death. I can still feel pain and suffer like any other person. But here's the catch. Every time I die, I'm simply reborn into another body. Death for me is but a moment of darkness and shortly after, I'm brought back through another womb by another woman in another country. Death is short and the pain that follows lasts for eternity. If I were to die now in this bar, I simply would be born someplace else right after. So you're reincarnated? Precisely. He confirmed with a snap of his fingers. He reached for his glass and downed the wine all at once, not stopping to catch his breath for even a second. As I watched him, I couldn't help but pity the man that lurked beneath the skin of that young boy. Thousands of years of pain, all because he didn't agree with the views of the man in the clouds. Where did that leave him? Right here in a bar like every other miserable man in existence. I couldn't tell if it was the effects of the alcohol that were affecting me, or my curiosity in general but I felt compelled to ask him the question that had been stuck in my head for far too long now. Do you still believe it? I asked. When he finished drinking, he turned to me again and quirked an eyebrow. Believe what? That humanity's beyond redemption. He put the glass back down and smiled once more. A sad smile. Do you? He asked. I thought about it for a while, but eventually concluded that after what I had seen in the world, after what my father had done with me, and after everything I had been through, there was no hope. I didn't want to admit it, but what Joseph showed me was nothing short of how the world was today. War, brutality, inequality, pain. How was humanity supposed to redeem themselves when they hadn't changed at all in the past 2,000 years? I didn't exclude myself from the rest. I wasn't Mama's favorite child either. But if God was punishing a man for simply stating his opinion, what was the point of free will? What was the point of anything if it always landed us here in the end? I had been in this world for a little over 20 years, but this person in front of me had seen the rest of humanity these past millenniums, and yet our opinions were the same. No, I answered. I don't. Joseph flashed me a sincere smile again. 
It's been a while since I've had a conversation like this. I've had many mothers, many fathers, siblings, wives, husbands, children, friends, enemies, and everything in between. But none of them have quite been capable of providing the sort of companionship you've given me. Thank you for lending me your ear, miss. When is your sentence finished, Joseph? I caught myself asking. He released a tired sigh. I honestly don't know. He isn't elaborative about his plan, so I doubt any of us will ever know when the second coming arrives. If one thing's certain, it's that I'm not bound to escape this prison of mine anytime soon. He reached over the counter and touched my cheek. An affectionate gesture that nearly made tears build up in my eyes. Take this advice from me, miss. Divine neglect is nothing compared to its wrath. Value your life, because it is only temporary. With that, he made a move to do something. I expected him to make his way out the door, but he simply stood there by the counter. His eyes lingered on top of his empty glass. I'm sorry, but that was our last bottle. I said, but he didn't seem any less interested in it. One last time, he flashed me a smile and then reached for the glass. Before I could process what was happening, I watched as he raised it above his head and slammed it down against the counter. Shards went flying in every direction, and I had to dodge as to not get a piece of it in me. The moment I got back up, I was horrified to see that Joseph held the shard close enough to his throat to draw blood. Just as I was about to reach for him to prevent him from doing whatever he intended to do, he drew it all the way across his neck. It left behind a significant red cut that not even seconds later erupted with so much blood that it soaked the floorboards, his clothing, and splattered over everything within a five feet radius. Including me. My white shirt was covered with so much blood that I looked about ready to audition for the role of Carrie, but it was nothing compared to how Joseph looked. My first instinct wasn't to address how I looked, but to jump across the counter into the bleeding body before he could hit the floor. It was hard to keep a straight face as I bent to my knees and picked the boy up, watching as the color slowly drained from his face and blood continued to pour from his wound. I hastily tried to reach for the tile that rested over the counter and stopped the leading, but Joseph took my hand before I could, and his golden eyes appeared to me. He seemed so peaceful, like he wasn't in any pain at all. I didn't understand. Why? I whispered. Joseph merely smiled a tired but contented smile at me. This life was so tedious. He struggled to pronounce just as more blood made its way past his lips and down his neck. Hopefully, I get a more entertaining one next time. He put a blood-soaked tan on my cheek, caressing me fondly like a master would their beloved pet. It left behind a stain that would stay with me for years to come. I am happy, though. For having met someone like you, miss. Joseph released another cough that splattered blood on my uniform, but I barely noticed it. 
All I could focus on was the dying person in my arms. But if God is truly kind, we won't meet again. That was the last thing Joseph said before his golden eyes closed for good, and all I was left with was an empty vessel. The cops arrived not too long after I had called them. They took this statement from everyone who had been at the bar at the time of the incident, but none of them had admitted that they had seen or heard anything of the conversation that I shared with the young boy. All they said was that they saw him come in. There probably came the sound of something being broken, and the next thing anyone with a smidgen of sobriety knew, there is a dead body on the floor here. The body was later identified to be that of a 14-year-old boy named Christian O'Connell. His father was an abusive alcoholic, and his mother was a neglectful woman. The authorities ruled this incident as self-inflicted because of this, as they probably guessed that he had simply ended himself because of his violent home life. The officers initially assumed that I was involved or at the very least, had given the boy something to drink that could have resulted in his reckless actions. I was interrogated and everything, but I could only share with them what I knew they would believe. That the boy had come in, and after I had told him that he needed to leave, he ended himself. Still, they didn't believe me at first, but after the autopsy was conducted, they shared that there wasn't a spot of alcohol in his system. So, I was out of harm's way. I didn't dare contradict them on this theory. I'd rather believe it myself, had these circumstances been different. Shortly after the incident, I quit my job and moved away from the city altogether. I wanted to put everything that had happened behind me, and the first step to do so was to find another place to live and a new job. I began to work as a waitress at a cafe in the new city. It wasn't good in terms of pay, but it was predictable, and given what I'd been through, it was all that I wanted now. A predictable, safe life, void of anything even remotely strange. A life that I could appreciate and value. At some point, a couple of years later, I met the man who would become my fiancé and eventual husband. Things were going well, and not long after we got engaged... I became pregnant with our first child. It didn't matter to any of us that the child was born before we were married. All we cared about was that we were happy and that everything was going well. After I gave birth, I was so happy to know that our child was healthy. A healthy, beautiful baby boy. We named him Nicholas, after my husband's father. The moment that I first held him in my arms... Still warm from the month that he had spent growing inside of my womb. I felt such love for him that it could never compare to anything else. Not even the affection I had for my husband. I just knew that I wanted to care for him. Watch him grow and thrive. And protect him from whatever the world would throw at him. However, as happy as I was to hold my baby in my arms... I noticed something that probably placed a heavy weight on my body. Nicholas's eyes were golden. I tried to think rationally as a new mother, and consulted with the doctors about the cause of Nicholas's eyes. 
They said that it may have been caused by some kind of genetic but rare defect, and as long as his vision wasn't impaired in any way, then there was doubtfully anything to worry about. A couple of years passed and to me and my husband's relief, Nicholas developed just like any other boy. He was happy, cheerful, and possessed enough energy to drive us to the brink of exhaustion every day. He was a good boy, and no amount of words or actions will ever be enough to express how much I love him. I started to believe that what the doctors had said to me was true, and that the cause of Nicholas's eyes was nothing remotely linked to anything supernatural. One day, while I was in the kitchen washing some dishes, I heard Nicholas shuffle behind me, no doubt trying to surprise me. It was a fun activity for him, trying to be sneaky. For the sake of amusing him, I would feign surprise. However, as I turned around and prepared for Nicholas to raise his arms and roar like he always would, I became genuinely surprised to see him simply standing there, a smile plastered on his face. Mommy, he said. I'm glad. What are you so glad about, sweetie? I asked. What he said next shook me to the core. I'm glad that you're my new mommy, miss.